hear your word and to um, hear the gospel um, from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your preacher as he speaks it. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would forget quickly what's incorrect and that you would just ingrain in us and fill us with your spirit with what is correct. God, thank you, Lord, for this group of people that you love. We're not here by accident. I ask that you just bless this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You guys might recall, and I think it was around um, the early 2000s, 2002, 3-ish, there was a, a movie um, with Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix called Signs. Has anyone seen that movie? Okay, we got some people here. Um, spoiler alert, okay? It's one of those kind of um, cool, twisty, fun movies. I'm going to tell you everything that happens in it right now. So if you don't want to know, block your ears or something. Okay, two, so in 2002, this movie comes out, um, and it's filled with all sorts of kind of seemingly meaningless and tri trivial uh, bits of information. Um, there's a young boy with asthma. Uh, there's a young girl, if you recall, in the movie that sort of incessant, incessantly leaves these kind of half-full glasses of water around the house. Do you remember this? She just she leaves them everywhere. There's hundreds of them around the house. Um, there's a, the, their uncle, who is Joaquin Phoenix, is like a failed baseball player. He didn't make it as a baseball player, so he's sort of kind of like on a, a little bit miserable and upset with how his life turned out. Um, the father, who is Mel Gibson, was a former priest, a pastor, who had lost his faith because his wife had died tragically in a car accident. And there's one scene um, kind of flashing back to the accident where he rushes to the scene and he hears her last words. Do you remember what they were? Swing away. Swing away. Right. Tell my brother to swing away. Not I tell the kids I love them. Not those things. Um, tell my brother to swing away. As the movie continues, their small town is visited by uh, some not-so-friendly guests, um, aliens from another world um, that are on uh, basically an evacuation mission. Um, and they have this gas and these different ways to, um, to take care of the enemy, so to speak. Um, so as it continues, there's this struggle that begins between this family in particular and these aliens. There's one scene where the, the, alien, the aliens grab the young boy and they have this poisonous gas that they gas their enemies with. But because he's got asthma, you remember that piece of information that you thought um, was meaningless, but because he has asthma, it doesn't kill him, he ends up living. He didn't inhale the gas. They also find out that, guess what? Water kills these things. Water kills the aliens. And the little girls, hundreds of glasses, of half-filled water glasses, at the end are used as weapons um, when the uncle realizes that he is strong enough to take this bat that he happens to be holding, um, and his baseball skills, and he starts launching these water glasses into the face of the aliens shortly before he recalls the words of his sister, tell my brother to swing away. Interesting. In all this, the father, Mel Gibson, learns that God has not left him, that he is not alone, and that life is not an accident. <clears throat> all of these movements of providence leads to a singular duty. Right? All of these events, the aliens and the water and the words of the wife, all of this led to a singular moment, a defining moment, swing away. 
swing away. It all, it all filtered down into that moment where they were actually able to defeat the aliens. God is present, and he has provided. Now act, swing, so to speak. Now, um, it might seem kind of like a fanciful sort of movie, an interesting, whimsical outlook on life. Um, and as we try to determine what seems to be the arbitrary nature of events. And maybe there's something in us that wants to see more to our lives rather than seemingly meaningless and disconnected change of events. And you know, I think I would have to agree that sometimes life does seem meaningless, that, that the events in our lives do seem arbitrary. If it were not for the Bible, I might end up believing that myself. I would have no real authority to believe otherwise. But friends, the message of Scripture, the clear message of the Bible from start to finish, is that God is in and works through all of the events of human history. God is present. And that is incredibly meaningful for your life and for mine. It means that our lives are not accidents. It means that there is a purpose, that there's a reason. Nothing is an accident, and that is our basis of hope. Today, friends, as you recall, marks the beginning of the Advent season in the church's calendar. For centuries and centuries, Advent has been a celebrated um, season in the life of the church. Um, it's not, uh, and it goes across the board. It's Anglican, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian. Modern evangelicals tend to just do Christmas Eve, but in the history of the church, Advent has been uh, the four weeks, the four Sundays before Christmas Eve, and sometimes the fourth Sunday is combined with Christmas Eve, which is what we're doing this year. And each Sunday looks at the birth of Christ as the Advent, the arrival of something. First, of hope, that which is this morning's topic. Second, of love then of joy, then of peace, and then of purity. And all of these things are symbolized in the candles in front of me. Each candle symbolizes one of those things. So this morning, from our text, I'd like to look at the advent of hope with you, the advent of hope. And I want to observe this morning that um, four things about hope. That hope is grounded, hope is directed, hope is heavenly, and hope is risky. I like that one. Hope is grounded, Hope is directed, hope is heavenly, and hope is risky. <clears throat> so look, let's look at number one. Hope is grounded. Hope in the Bible is not fanciful. It's not wishful thinking. It's not an expression of desire, even. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today. So much for that one. <laughs> or I hope the Pats win. Right? I, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. <clears throat> right? Where when we when we use the word hope like that, we use it in the sense of a, a wish, a desire. We're not really sure. In scripture, hope is not this. Hope is a confident expectation that an event will actually occur. You know it's gonna happen. <clears throat> Isaiah fifty five reminds us of this, and the reason that we can hope like this. The reason we can have this kind of hope is because of passages like Isaiah 55. Because the Christian hope is based first on the promise of God, the word of God. 
God has spoken a promise to us. And because of who God is, we have a confident expectation that what he says will happen, will actually happen. Let's read Isaiah 55 together. As the rain, and this is beginning in verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out and, and hear, well, okay, great. God does what he says he's going to do. It happens because nobody can interfere with God. No one can resist his will or his word. He speaks and the universe comes into existence. We learn this in Genesis chapter 1. So what's his word? What's his promise? What is he speaking to us? You, verse 12, will go out in joy, and you will be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the hills will clap their hands. Are you serious? That's what it says about you in Christ. There is no problem you're going through, friend, as hard as our problems can be, and as grief-stricken as we can feel, there is nothing better than this. God is promising us joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst forth into song, and the trees of the, field, the hills will clap their hands. Oh, that might not be your experience right now. You might be in the valley of death right now, but there is light in Christ. The hope of God's word is the promise fulfilled, what he speaks to you. So here's the question we have to ask. What are we believing? What message, what word have I chosen to believe? The one where I'm defeated? The one where I'm speaking to myself, ruin and destruction? Or the one that God has spoken to us? Oh friend, believe the word of God. You remember the psalmist in chapter 19? C.S. Lewis called this the greatest poem ever written by man. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and, uh, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You see, the word of God is our hope. The reason that we can believe that we're entering into eternal bliss as Christians with our sins forgiven and covered is because God has decreed it. God has said it. God has promised it. It matters not how I feel about it. It matters not what I'm going through. God has spoken, and it will happen. Amen? I, the Lord, Malachi chapter 3, you know what this says? I, the Lord, do not change. I change all the time. I used to hate Brussels sprouts. Now I love them. My wife makes them fantastic. I used to hate asparagus. Ugh. 
changed my mind about. Some good, some not so good. I, the Lord, do not change. So that when he decrees love to you, in a year from now or two years from now, perhaps like maybe our estranged husbands or wives or girlfriends or boyfriends, he has not changed his mind about his love for us. It endures. And he has promised us a blessing. You know what it says also in Numbers chapter 23. This is in the Old Testament. God is not human that he should lie. Why can't he lie? Well, because he doesn't lie, first of all, but he also doesn't change. God is not human that he should change his mind. You see, I could tell you I love you and just be lying to you, or I could tell you I love you and then change my mind about it a year from now. I don't love you anymore. He loves me, he loves you not, right? God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received the command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot change it. You see, that's the promise of God in Numbers chapter 23, to everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, that our lives have received the command from God of blessing, and he will not change it. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that fantastic? God has commanded a blessing on you, a blessing, and he will not change it. That's hope, friends. That's hope. In our text, if you recall, we read this at the beginning. So Joseph went up to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and he was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Very simple kind of Here's some information that you might not really care about. <laughs> Jesus was born. That's what we care about. Does it really matter what town he's being born in or all of this information about David? Jesus is born. Jesus is a cool guy. That's, that's all I really need to know. Why is Joseph doing this? And it, a decree is issued from Caesar Augustus, and Joseph sort of obeys that decree, goes home to his town, to his hometown in Bethlehem. Why is this happening? It's not because Caesar decreed it, and it's not because Joseph decided to be a good boy and listen to Caesar. It's because God decreed it. It's because God had decided this, because God had promised that the Savior, the Messiah, would come from the Old Testament King David and would be born in his town, Bethlehem. And because God had decided it, Joseph ended up there with Mary. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Jesus should have been born in Nazareth. That's where Joseph lived. But a decree came, and it pushed them to Bethlehem. Isn't that incredible? From Joseph, the ancestor of David, the city of David. You recall in the Old Testament, too, a promise is made to King David. God tells David through the prophet, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would die for our sins, would come from the line of King David. And here we have this, what seems to be, some arbitrary information. So Joseph went up. 
to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. You see how things are coming together? You see the half-empty glasses of water starting to be set up around the room? God made a pledge. He spoke a word to bless, to bring the Messiah, and he cannot change his mind. So he brought the Messiah to Bethlehem, and the Messiah indeed was born from the line of David. Jesus is the promised Savior, the King of Kings from David's line, born in Bethlehem because God had decided it to be so. You see, friends, these aren't coincidence. These aren't, this isn't circumstantial. This is the divine decree, the sovereign movement of a holy God whose word doesn't change. You see what I mean? Isn't that fantastic? And let's remember, I have decreed blessing on you, and I cannot change it. Oh, fantastic. Christian hope is not a whim. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a long shot. It's not, cho it's not chance coincidence. It is grounded in the unchanging, irrevocable, powerful word of God. Amen? God has spoken, and it will be. Praise God. Hope is grounded. Number two, hope is directed. Hope is directed. Now, we've already talked about this some, but let's talk about it some more. If this means that hope is directed, it means that there are no accidents of history or the events of our lives. There are no accidents of history or the events of our lives. You are not sitting in a church in Warren, Rhode Island in 2018 listening to me by accident. You are not here with whatever you're enduring in your life by accident. There's a reason. I'm not here to claim that I know what that reason is, but I know that there is a reason because I know who God is and I know what he has spoken to us. So friends, it's not an accident that you're here this morning. It's not an accident that perhaps your heart was broken. Those deaths or separations are not meaningless, arbitrary events. Let's think about all the accidents of the Bible. This is fun, okay? You recall Pharaoh does not decide, I'm going to kill all the firstborn babies in all of Egypt, right? So Pharaoh decrees this, this death of, excuse me, the Hebrew boys. And what happens? This accidentally leads Moses' mother to send him down a river, which accidentally wound up in, in, at Pharaoh's back door, who was found accidentally by the queen who raised him as his own. You see, friends, there is no accidents. You see, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home, and he would become the deliverer of, e of Israel. You know that Moses, later on in his life, accidentally committed a crime, and he ran for his life. This was before he went back to Egypt to deliver the, 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 the children of Israel, right? So he's running for his life, accidentally, in the wilderness, stumbling across a burning bush where God would commission him, where he would repent and be set free to redeem and rescue the children of Israel. Oh, you know that Joseph, right? You know, how about this one? Joseph, he was accidentally sold into slavery, right? And he accidentally ended up on a paddy wagon to Egypt, who accidentally ended up in Potiphar's house, who accidentally was flirted with by his wife and then arrested. He's accidentally again in jail for something he didn't do. 
Oh, oh, and by the way, accidentally is sitting right next to someone who he prophesies to, and that person is accidentally let out and, and, and goes back to Pharaoh, who this guy accidentally remembers that there was a man in prison who answered his dreams. Oh, and by the way, Joseph accidentally, because of this, ends up second in command in Egypt and rescues his own family, the same family who tried to kill him because there was accidentally a drought. You see, friends, there are no accidents in human history. Joseph himself said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, friends, life is hard. Life is difficult. Life comes with tragedy and grief. And I'm not saying God causes those bad things to happen, but he uses them. He directs them. He's in them. He pushes us through them. You know that Julius Caesar, you guys have heard of Julius Caesar, that famous Caesar of Rome, made Rome great. You know that he was accidentally murdered, right? And this left three of his sort of progeny accidentally in charge of Rome. One of those progeny accidentally dies, and the other one, Mark Anthony, falls in love with someone. Who was it? Cleopatra. Mark Anthony accidentally falls in love with Cleopatra, who, by the way, she was the last pharaoh of Egypt. And this led to a battle, a conflict, with Octavian, the third progeny of this trifecta of, of, of men ruling Rome. They end up in a conflict as, as the, over this, this love affair with Cleopatra, and that conflict accidentally brings Octavian into absolute rulership over, over Rome, and he's declared Augustus Caesar over all of Rome. Oh, and by the way, Octavian accidentally has superior administrative organizational skills. Jesus Christ is accidentally born at the same exact time that Octavian is ruling, who, by the way, because of his organizational skills, accidentally requires a census of the Jews to return to their homelands. You see, friends, it was Octavian, not Julius Caesar, that was Ro Roman's ruler at the time. An extremely gifted administrator, and po quite possibly, you could argue, this, registra this registration never would have happened unless Octa Octavian was ruling the Roman Empire at the time, and Joseph would have never had to return to Bethlehem. He would have given birth to Jesus right in Nazareth. But God's word doesn't return void. Amen. You see, God is in the events of human history. God uses the events of human history to accomplish good things in our lives for those of you who love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing is outside of his direct care. Isn't that fantastic? So Joseph is in Bethlehem because of a Roman decree with his pregnant wife who gives birth on arrival, not on the way, delivering the Messiah in Bethlehem rather than Nazareth. What's clear in the Bible is that God is working in the details of human history and in our lives. Even in those events that are tragic and troubling, maybe even evil, God is pushing redemption through. Listen to these wise words of one scholar, Darrell Bach. The accidental events of history have become acts of destiny. Little actions have great significance. 
for the ruler was to come out of Bethlehem, and only a governmental decree puts the parents in the right place. Wow. Friends, your lives are not accidents. <coughs> the events of your lives are not accidents. You, you say, well, you don't know the, the marriage I'm in. It's not an accident. Do you believe that God has you where he wants you? Trust him. Follow him. And he will do good things. Hope is grounded. Hope is directed. <coughs> Number three, hope is heavenly. Hope is heavenly. So recall again in our text what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the town of Bethlehem. So again, Caesar Augustus issues this decree and Joseph obeys that decree. Pretty simple. Not rocket science. <clears throat> Maybe even a little obscure. Why do we need to know this? Joseph is obedient. Now this is significant because at the time there was a growing population of Jewish dissenters. They didn't like the fact that Rome was basically ruling Israel with a puppet king in Herod. They didn't like this. So uh, a group of, of people began more uh, and, uh, Israelites, Jewish people, they were called zealots. They wanted liberty. They wanted freedom from Roman, what they believed to be Roman oppression. Does that make sense? So these were Jewish nationalists that were seeking independence from Rome, and their desire was to be free from Roman authority. So you would imagine these zealots weren't so quick to obey Roman decrees. Right? it's very likely that Joseph could have ended up being one of these zealots. But he's not one of these zealots. These zealots often did things like civil disobedience and even acts of violence. But Joseph, not him. Why wouldn't he be? Now imagine yourself at the time. Just put yourselves in their shoes. If another country all of a sudden took over our country, and we were all of a sudden all French. This is France now. I don't think we'd like that as America. This is America. We wouldn't like that. It probably would be pretty difficult for us to not kind of rise up some kind of insurrection and stand our ground. We're American after all. We love independence. We rule ourselves, so we think, right? You know, so this is, this is what we believe. This is the mantra of American life. So we wouldn't like it. I don't think it would be much different back then. It would probably be very easy to think, like, we need Israel. We need to take Israel back. But Joseph isn't thinking like this. Why isn't Joseph a zealot? Is he kind of a pushover? Is he a wuss? Right, what's going on? I, I think, and this is speculation I have to admit, that it's because Christian hope and Joseph's hope is ultimately heavenly and not earthly. It's heavenly and not earthly. The reason Joseph was obedient to the government, to the Roman government perhaps, was because he looked forward to a better government, a greater kingdom. Perhaps he was like his father Abraham. By faith, Abraham, it says this in Hebrews, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, 
And though he did not know where he was going, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Abraham moves as a stranger to a foreign place. And why does he do this? Well, according to Hebrews, because he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You see, friends, hope is heavenly. It's not in the next president. It's not in Obamacare or not Obamacare, whatever way you lean. It's not in these things, friends. It's in the king of kings, the coming savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I think our church should and could be a mixed bag of political flavors because we ultimately believe in the, the king, Christ the king, who is coming for us. Christian hope isn't peace coming through some governmental ruler. Oh, friends, it is the hope of peace on earth. The coming of Christ is the hope of peace on earth. And I know that Christians can and should and do care about social injustices in our world. So please don't get me wrong. We should be advocates for the oppressed, for the poor, and the lonely. But friends, Christian hope is convinced that only when Jesus returns will our hope be fully and finally satisfied. That's when peace on earth comes. Now, we can do our best now, and we can advocate for the oppressed now, but friends, ultimately our hope is in Jesus Christ. It's heavenly. It's not earthly. So because Joseph hoped in the king of kings, he obeyed an order to put his life, to put his nine-month pregnant wife's life and his unborn son's life into danger, by hopping on a donkey or a camel and heading to Bethlehem. He doesn't hem and haw like the donkey. He doesn't slander, right? He doesn't resist. He doesn't complain about Caesar. He goes and he trusts because his hope is in the king inside his wife and not the king outside of it. Wow. You see? Friends, oh, there is a king, and he has promised something to us. Put your hope in that. Put your hope in him. Amen? <clears throat> Finally, hope is risky. Okay? You risk, the, you risk for what you hope in. When you start hoping in something, you start living differently. Don't you? I hope this girl likes me. Let me give you an example. I hope this girl likes me. What do you normally do when you start hoping something like that? You start acting pretty stupid, right? <laughs> Hey, how you doing? <laughs> right? I am my shirt today. You do things that you normally wouldn't do. I liked this girl, I should tell you. I liked this I liked this girl in high school and she didn't like me. That's the story of my life until later. Um, uh, yeah, I liked this girl in high school and she didn't like me. Oh, I wanted her to. I hope she would. So one day, I decide, because of my romantic, bleeding, 18-year-old heart, I decided to go to her house. It was, it, it was very dramatic. It was like a movie. It was pouring rain. Right? So I go to her house. I had a rose for her, and I kind of chickened out. Right? It's pouring rain, so I was like, no, I'm going to leave it here. So I, I stuck it in her hedges. <laughs> in the front of the yard, I stick it in her hedges. And I'm like, that's my love on your property. It's not in my car. Right? You, you do weird things when you start hoping for something. You're not thinking straight. You see, friends, when you hope for something, you start you start living a little bit differently. You start acting differently. Isn't that true? 
Hope is risky. You know, Joseph hoped in the Messiah. And Mary hoped in the Messiah. An angel in the Old Testament scriptures had told them that a Savior was coming. That Savior was going to save them from their sin. Reunite them. Deliver them to God's extravagant love forever and ever with them in eternity. That's what they hoped in. They knew the Old Testament spoke that, and now angels were telling them that this Messiah is now growing in the, the womb of your own wife. And because they hoped in that, they did some pretty risky things. He marries her, risk number one, of, of uh, his wife who claimed to be pregnant as a virgin. You see, other people wouldn't have believed that, right? So he was doing something culturally scandalous at the time. He was taking a risk. You see, in our culture, that might not matter as much, but then, this was a big deal. For him to marry someone that was perceived as having been unfaithful prior to marriage to him who she was betrothed to, he's taking a risk. An angel even had to show up to him and say, Joseph, don't fear, don't put her away from you. That's what he was going to do. Don't put her away from you. Marry her. She's a virgin. The child is the Messiah. The Holy Spirit has caused her to be pregnant. And guess what? He believes it. He believes it. So that's risk number one. Now, they have to hoof it a hundred miles from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem. You can go online. They actually have tours. They, they call it the, the Bethlehem Journey. You can go to Israel and hike the same exact tour that they, that they, what they believe that they hiked. Um, th there are different ideas of what routes they, they took, but most of them are about 100 miles. It would have taken eight to 10 days on, on donkey or camel. Can you imagine being nine months pregnant on a donkey? Going anywhere on a donkey? Going down to Pizonis? At the end of the street, you wouldn't have done that. Mary, nine months pregnant, gets on a donkey, led by her husband, and for a hundred miles they journey to Bethlehem. And you know what, by the way, we all celebrate Christmas in, in, in December. That's just the day we've chosen to celebrate Christmas. It's, it's wintry, it's cold. But they actually believe that Jesus was born in the summertime. Right? So guess what? That makes this even harder. Now it's 100 degrees on this stinky donkey. A lot of scholars believe as well, what's, what's really interesting, is that the route that they took to get from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have went through the same wilderness that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Right? So what, what's that saying to us in this journey? This was a test on Mary and Joseph and on Jesus. This was a test. This was a trial. Because hope is risky. Hope makes you do things that you would never do or have done otherwise. And if hope isn't grounded, if it's, if it's not directed, if it's not heavenly, you're never going to risk anything for it. See, friends, hope is risky. Why wouldn't Joseph plead to delay this trip with the Roman officials because of his wife's condition. Can we just wait? She's almost giving birth. Can you give us like a month pass until we have the baby, then we'll go. What's more, some people believe that Mary didn't even have to go with him. 
because he was from Bethlehem, not her. So she doesn't even have to be there. Right? Why is she on the trip? I believe they did this very, very simply because we risk everything for the things that we hope most in. We risk everything for the things that we hope most in. Let's go back now to the movie Signs. Okay? You're this failed baseball player about to be gassed by an alien, okay? And all the bits of information are starting to kind of sink into your brain. That the aliens can be killed by water. That your niece has left water all around the house. That you used to be a baseball player and I'm holding a bat. Okay, I'm doing the math. My, my sister, before she died, told me to swing away. So now all of a sudden, I'm given courage because of all of this information to actually go and attack this alien. I know what I'm supposed to do. I was born for this moment. You see, that's what's happening in the movie Signs. Swing away. All of it aligns. Courage washes over him, and he acts as a man on a mission with a destiny. Swing away. Could it be for Joseph and Mary, the virgin birth, the angelic vision, the promise of the prophets that the child would be born in Bethlehem, the fact that they're being forced to go to Bethlehem, could they all of a sudden have been starting to do the math, the Messiah is here. And because I know that, I'm going to do anything. I'm going to risk everything because he's come. God has accomplished his word. Swing away. Let's go. Amen? Amen. Friends, when our blind eyes finally see, when we start to do the math, when we start to look at the stars and the moon and the trees, everything around us that screams the love of God and the power of God, when we start to realize that his word has been spoken to us in so many different ways through his word, people, chance meetings, a preacher like me, you start to realize these are not accidents, that God is after me, he's hunting me because he loves me. That's you, friend. That's you sitting in this room. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, would you swing your back? Would you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Would you surrender? Would you put it down? Because he loves you. He promised the Savior before that Savior came. He came and he died for us in our place so that he could live with us forever. That's why you were born. That's why you're here. That's why you matter. And that means that you can go to work with freedom. You don't have to prove yourself at work anymore. You don't have to prove yourself by having a new relationship. You are already accepted, already loved, already proven. Swing away. Friends, swing away. The writing's on the wall. Your heart's beating in your chest. You have life. You came from somewhere. You came from a good God who loves you that proved himself to us by sending his son to die and resurrect from the dead so that you would know that there is a God and that he has spoken to you. That's how we can know this. It's even true and real. So come to him, friends. Swing away. Don't waste that. Sin is not better than this. It's not. I've lived it a long time. 
and it's not better than this. Put that stuff down and go after Jesus Christ. Hope in him. He's our hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, oh, how we come to you this morning trusting in Christ, the advent of hope. We pray, Lord, that we would believe the signs. The signs that there is a God. The signs that we've been put here for a reason. Even the signs that something's wrong. That it needs to be made right. The signs even of our own guilt and separation from God. And the ultimate sign of all, the resurrection of Christ. To solve the problem of that guilt. To reconcile us with our creator, our God, our maker. God, thank you for your benevolent love, your outstanding grace, and the hope that we have because you have spoken. Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ, would you swing away right now? Go out. Dear God, say, pray with me, God, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. You have pointed me in so many directions and been so obvious in my life. Oh God, I'm surrendering to you now. I believe that your son Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died in my place for my sin. And because of this, he's going to give me his life, his righteousness, his goodness. And I'll be with you forever and ever in heaven. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Oh, friends, if that's you, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. And you have an eternal hope in Christ. Would you come share it with me after church? To make a choice for the first time in your life right now. Come share it with me. 